Hello, everyone. A very quick one from me. It would be a massive help to us with our ambition to help as many recruiters as possible achieve their goals and also inspire the next generation to choose recruitment as a career if you hit that follow and subscribe button. If you're someone that prefers to learn in a visual way, we've also recently invested a lot in our video podcast experience. So in the show notes, you'll always be able to find the link to watch the video on our YouTube channel and make sure that you hit subscribe so you don't miss a future episode. Thank you so much for supporting the show and enjoy this week's episode. Welcome back to another episode of the Recruitment Mentors Podcast. I'm your host, Hisham Azuz. And in today's episode, I was joined by Susanna Gray-Jones, who has worked within education recruitment for over a decade, where she took herself as a trainee all the way to senior manager and divisional manager level. And we spoke a lot about that journey. And more recently, she's been on her own entrepreneurial journey where over the last 18 months to two years, uh, nearly coming up to two years, she's been building her own rec-to-rec business. We discussed loads in this conversation from mindset to what good prospecting looks like, what is really common amongst top performers within the recruitment industry. We also dived into some great advice for any of you who may be considering a career move within recruitment, what to look for uh, within a recruitment business. If you're not quite getting what you hoped for in your current environment, how to navigate that and ask the right questions and so much more. Enjoy the episode. Welcome to the podcast, Susanna. How are we? I'm so good. I love being in London. (laughs) So for those that will be watching, but if you're listening in a new space today. So Susanna, you're the first person joining me in the the new podcast studio that we're going to be using to record. So I'm excited to have a a good conversation about all things recruitment in in this new space. Yeah. So we always start with the million pound question, but I guess just before we do, I wanted to give people listening uh, just a bit of background and context to to your journey, but we're going to get into it. So you've been in recruitment since 2008. Mm-hmm. A lot of that time has been within education recruitment, but for the last 18 months, coming up to two years, you've been building your own rec rec business. For the first three years of your recruitment career, you're very much focused on uh, yourself, individual contributor, but then uh, went into leadership and before you left education recruitment, uh, was a sales director for the business that you work for. So I think today, definitely going to talk about how to be successful in education recruitment, the things that you learn, leadership. But then also, I think a lot of people do think about doing rec to rec, probably think it's easier than it is. So <laughs> definitely uh, curious to find out what your journey has been, what you've learned, challenges, and also, yeah, just, just the insights that you've taken from speaking to, to recruiters every day. So let me ask you the billion pound question then, because I'm sure you've had to really think about this when hiring for your, for your clients. So in your opinion, what characteristics and traits really make up a, a successful recruiter in, in today's market, do you think? Yeah, that is the question that everyone's asking, isn't it? It's, um, what is a good recruiter? So, first of all, I've learned along the way, I've made some really big mistakes by recruiting the wrong people very early in my career. And recruiting the wrong person can be disastrous for an organisation. And recruitment isn't what everyone thinks it is. People go into it and they think it's going to be something completely different. They think, oh, I'll just find people jobs, but it's so much more than that. In many places, it's sales, it's building relationships, it's compliance. There's so many different aspects to it. So to answer your question, I would say, first of all, humility. And sounds really obvious, but not many people have humility (laughs) these days. There's quite a few people who expect quite a lot and accountability would be a huge one, but also the ability to read people and build relationships and listen. Don't you hate it? Like training, they always talk about listen, like it's really obvious, but actually it's really hard because as human beings, we're often trying to think about what that person's going to say. When, if you were talking to me, I might be thinking, what am I going to say next? What am I going to say next? How many times are we engaged in a conversation with someone and we're actually thinking about what we're going to say opposed to actually engaging what they're saying? So I think the ability to listen, humility 
and to build relationships. Yeah, listen, I'm always trying to improve on my listening skills. It's exactly what you said. Quick question on that then. I'm definitely hearing this a lot in terms of the recruitment leaders that I speak to around accountability, humility. How have you ended up looking for humility, accountability or testing that, yeah, the, the job that you do now? Or maybe how did you look for that when you was hiring people in education recruitment? Like, How did you test those things? I think there's a big clue in how people speak about their experiences. And this doesn't just relate direct direct. I think it relates to any kind of recruitment. When people reflect on previous experiences, previous jobs, they either tell themselves that they learned from a bad experience or they blame someone else. And I think there's two types of people. There's one type of person who's like, oh, the environment was just wrong. They treated me like rubbish and it's just not fair. And I don't want to work there anymore. And they jump around and you see them everywhere. Okay, lots of these. I'd probably say about 70% of the job market are people who jump around and expect a lot. But then you get that 30%. People who are accountability, they're accountable for their own success. They look at themselves and they've, they think, what could I have done differently? And they have that ability to self-reflect that type of person is the type of person who's always learning, is the type of person I find is truly successful in recruitment. Yeah, so asking them to share about, talk about their experiences and like you said, looking for clues of people saying it was their fault or pointing the finger rather than going, I could have done this better. Yeah, yeah, definitely. There's some brilliant questions out there. You know, like what would you say is the best thing about managing you? Everyone can answer that because we sell ourselves, right? We're recruiters. But what is the hardest thing about managing you? Well, tell me about a really bad day. And then they'll talk to you, oh, well, candidate ghosted me. They didn't turn up. This really awful thing happened. And then a client was angry with me. But then do they turn it into a positive or do they just delve into the negativity? Like, how do they lift themselves up? A lot of people are talking about bounce of back ability, like the ability to bounce back from a really bad situation. Yeah, I love that. So. Let's talk about this uh, educational recruitment journey. So starting in 2008, um, from what, what I saw, worked for a big recruitment business and then joined another business, which you ended up working for, was it for like 10 years or something like yeah, that? Yeah, yeah. So young out of university, the world's your oyster, right? Um, I, every aspect of my life, you know, I'd have new boyfriends every six months. I've had, I was changing jobs. Like, I think I had two jobs within a year. And I was like, do you know what? Like, I don't know. Well, you know, didn't really have a, a plan. Was just happy to be in London doing my thing. And then I found this really great company that just believed in me and really nurtured me. I was never an administrator. There are a lot of people in sales. You say you've got like people who are very adaptable and salesy and people who are great kind of crossing the T's and dotting the I's. I was never one of those people. I was always about the sales, the quick, kind of very, very kind of almost impatient, nosy, which I think actually really good qualities for a recruiter. And But they recognised that. You know, I'm I'm dyslexic. I've got dyspraxia. They didn't bring me down for the fact that maybe I was a bit scatty. They looked at what I was doing well and supported me with those things. And because of that, I found my home. And had I not found that, who knows? I might not be in recruitment today. I think I truly believe that if people can find the right environment, then they can build their career. And many people leave recruitment unnecessarily because they've had a bad experience or they think it's something it's not. But if you can find that right environment, it can change your life. And it did for me. How did they make you feel then? Because you've obviously had experiences where you didn't feel supported, included, empowered. Is that something you felt quite quickly in the interview process? Is it something that you felt quite early on? Like how, how did they make you feel like that? I think it's that je ne sais quoi, isn't it? You you come to an interview and it's like, it's when you meet someone, you know, you just kind of, I like your vibe. Like it's kind of, you just kind of, you connect, you're speaking the same language. You know, we talk about love languages a lot, don't they? Like people have different ways of expressing themselves when, when they like, it's the same with employment. You have different languages of how you, you grow. And I think it, it's not about my company were access were a, a, a better company than anywhere else obviously they were for me but I think it's finding the right place for you and your personality and yeah they were very accepting of different types of people let's just talk about this for a sec so we're, with that I think this would be helpful for people there'll probably be a lot of people listening to this that don't feel like in the current environment they're in they are empowered 
included in the things that you've described. So I guess just to get a bit more practical there, because you're now helping recruiters, like if you've maybe recognised that the environment that you're in isn't an environment that you think is getting the best out of you, obviously there's got to be an element of accountability in there, <laughs> as we said. Uh, yeah. But what can I actually do to have a better chance of of finding that? You know, because... I don't know, I understand what you're saying, but should I be asking the right questions? What are my non-negotiables that I look for when I go in a sort of interview environment? I don't know if there's anything more practical there that could help people actually really apply it in those types of environments to mm-hmm. feel more confident that they're going to be in the business that is, is right for them if they're not feeling they're in the right business for them at the moment. Yeah, I mean, the first thing I would say is as human beings, we have this will to connect with people, right? So the first thing I would say is the don't. <laughs> the natural thing to do is when you don't feel valued or you feel like the environment isn't quite right for you, the natural thing, and we see it everywhere, is to go to my colleague and say, over lunch, let's go and have lunch. Oh, I feel really undervalued. And oh my gosh, misery loves a friend and it builds and it creates, it doesn't make you feel any better. And we all see it in every organisation, people group together and they have a moan and then it doesn't get any better. People look for signs, they get a bit paranoid about the workplace. I think the first thing you can do is deal with it head on without speaking to your colleague about it because it might not be a problem for them. And that's been a huge thing for me growing in my career is not getting involved in the negativity that happens in the offices (laughs) and being kind and pleasant to everyone, but professional. My path is my path. I'm not going to get involved in the whinging, which you have in every workplace. So the first thing I would say, find a boss that you can speak to. Do they listen? Do they understand you? Because it might be that they do and they fix it straight away. And that is what I say to many recruiters that I speak to. I say, speak to your boss first. You feel undervalued, not paying you enough. What have you done to speak to them? Because I'm not going to represent them if I think they'll be better off where they are by just having a simple conversation. I'm not that type of recruiter. I'm not just after a quick fee. I'd rather that they had, I actually coached them to having that conversation. I make no money out of them, but I've helped them be happier in their own workplace. And for me, that is what it's about. Sometimes just empowering people to speak to their bosses. If they can't speak to their boss and they still feel undervalued and there's a whole sort of culture difficulty, then, you know, we go on our journey. But I always, first of all, will try and say, speak to them. And you'll be surprised often. We don't like being confrontational with our bosses if we respect them. And sometimes that's exactly what you need to do, but do it in the right way. Yeah, yeah. Difficult conversations, right? Yeah. But you have to have them. And then just just to sort of finalise that, if I've had that conversation, felt like they didn't listen, felt like, you know what, I've done my part. I've taken accountability. I've said, look, this is where I feel like I need more help or where I'm not being empowered or valued. Things don't change. What's then the advice in terms of like when you're then sitting in front of potential new employers, what is the practical advice in yeah, really trying to have the best chance of then having the, the next company to be the right fit and not the things that you've experienced. I think mm. that's what would be helpful for people because the way that you described your connection with the company that you ended up working for over a decade, I don't know, it sounded quite untangible. I don't know, there's sort of intangibles in there. It just felt right or whatever. So I don't know if there's anything you can then add in. Okay, I've had that conversation. Now I want to make sure, I want to commit myself to recruitment. I want to make sure that the next company is a company where I can thrive in, I'm I'm supported. What is it that I have to ask? What is it that I have to find out before I accept a job offer with a company and I'm made to feel confident that this could be the better environment for me? I love that question. And I think one of the main things would be to use it as, as a discovery. So often in interviews, we just want to impress, we want to be accepted that we forget to do our own discovery, write down what are the 10 most important values to me in this company and ask them for examples, right? So for example, if I think that I want to go somewhere where I can learn and really progress, I would say, what could that look like for someone like me? And what would you need to see from me to get to that point? And in what situation might that not happen so that you're prepared for you know, everyone talks about broken promises. I was promised this in three years and it didn't happen. So ask them, you know, what, when might this not happen? What would you need to see? Can you give me examples of people who've taken this journey? And ask them, what do people say that's great about your company? What do people say that's not so great? Like, and they'll probably be honest with you. And there's always going to be bad press about every company out there. So meet the people, make up your own minds and, you know, get as many examples as you can, get stories. Yeah, and no, I love that exercise of writing down the things that are really important to you. 
So let, let's talk about your your own recruitment career and then we'll, we'll talk about some of the things you've learned in the last 18 months or so. But let's just start with, from my own experience, obviously interviewing people like Steph, who we've had on the podcast, working a bit with her business, education recruitment, from what I understand, particularly on the temp side, perm may be a bit more similar to what I experienced when I was a perm recruiter, but it's just very nuanced and very, what am I trying to say, just... Yeah, I don't know, like very, like if you're an ed- successful education recruiter, I feel like that could potentially be very different for other industries. I don't know, you might be able to tell me differently, but it seemed very fast paced, can also uh, potentially be quite transactional in certain environments. So I guess I wanted to to start with like, from your perspective, what are the, the principles to being a successful education recruiter? Like let, let's start there from, from your own journey. Yeah, well, first of all, you can get by in any recruitment role, being a B recruiter, being an okay recruiter. But my advice would be it's not worth it. Like if you're going to be in recruitment, you've got to be an A recruiter. Now, for example, I would say try and avoid being transactional. Now, what I mean by that is, let's say, for example, you're talking about a role that you're interested in, but then you've decided, actually, no, Susanna, I don't want to go to the interview. I'm happy where I am. But I might know that this would be a much better fit for you. I might see that blind spot. I might be, but you'd be perfect in their organisation. Now, what I don't want to do is I don't want to push you, but I want to persuade you to at least have a chat. So an A-grade recruiter is someone who knows that blind spot, can influence that candidate in their best interest, not yours, and make them realise that it's in their best interest and not yours. So to be a top education recruiter, it's to avoid being transactional. It's to always think about why that person would be good for that setting and to tell them why and to make it more about them and make it more of a jigsaw to make sure the right pieces go in the right place as opposed to someone needs a teacher, let's just send them there. Like, what kind of teacher do you like? Who works well here? And this is why I think this person would work well there. So stop being a recruitment, recruiter, transactional person. Be a consultant. Bring back the consulting to recruiting because there are a lot of people who aren't consulting anymore. And I think it's really important that you remember you are there to consult, not just to transact. So don't be transactional. What else did the the real A a recruiters, top performers in education recruitment do really well, do you think? This podcast is proudly sponsored by Sourcebreaker. I think it's safe to say that in the past two years, the recruitment industry has seen a historical shift. It has been inundated with vacancies, a candidate shortage, and many new recruiters joining the industry. In this candidate-led market, business development hasn't been a priority for many. With a shift in the mist and with many new recruiters now in the industry, the next generation of rookies need to upskill and fast on how to get those much needed job leads. This is why I wanted to introduce Sourcebreaker, the recruitment platform that's transforming the way recruiters work. With Sourcebreaker, recruiters can quickly upskill with a market intelligence suite designed to effectively pursue BD opportunities, all from one place, giving your teams a competitive edge in an increasingly changing market. Basically, you spend less time sourcing the internet to find companies that could be hiring. With leads at your fingertips, there's more time to spend on converting leads into placements. Book a Sourcebreaker demo today and see the difference the platform can make. And as you listen to this podcast, you will get a unique discount on this fantastic product. Care, communication, right? Look at your LinkedIn. You probably get hundreds of messages every week and emails. And my opinion is there's a place for email. Some people prefer emails, but a robot can email, a robot can message, bring the personality into it, pick up the phone. And it sounds very old school and that whole smile and dial thing. But honestly, even if you're having a bad day, pick up the phone <laughs> because they, people would rather hear a voice. And we've got so much to our disposal these days. We've got video messages. We've got Zoom. Build the relationships with people when you're recruiting. So, And those will last forever. You might not have something for that candidate right now, but the fact that you took time, they will remember your service and they'll build that relationship. They'll come back to you, they'll refer people. And that is what a good recruiter is. Someone who's not just in it for the quick transaction, for the quick deal, but someone who really cares about that person and improving their life. Mm. And you were you as a temp recruiter, right? Yeah. 
I was. I was. So at, at the peak, like how many people did do you have? I'm assuming is it how many like temps you had in your book, or how many? I don't know how the, what the correct terminology would be for you. Yeah. In terms of how many runners you had out? How many teachers you had out? Probably about thirty to sixty a week, and that was a lot because you think in like the changes, the sickness, all of that, I would be, I don't know how I did it. I, I'm really into theatre as well. I would be doing shows in the evening and like picking up the phone in the interval, just like <laughs> trying to fill a role for the next day. Like it's full on temp, but the days go really quickly. It's really exciting. If you're the type of person who is just fascinated by people and you want to know if they're going to work out and you want to match them and like you guess it and then it does work and it doesn't work, then you'll love it. Like, if you, if you if you get bored easily, go into a temp environment, you'll never be bored. Mm. Just so full on. So let, let's talk about, because again, I'm sure you would have seen this a lot, particularly in, in leadership. What were the, the common stumbling blocks or common obstacles that recruiters in that environment, temp recruiters, would often maybe keep falling on, keep finding them, themselves hitting that would potentially hold them back or not enable them quite to get to where they could. What what were the constant challenges that maybe you had to help people break through and, and work through in, in that type of environment? Yeah, I think the bounce back ability, the resilience, because someone's going to let you down, but the sales, okay? Everyone's like, recruitment's not sales. It, it is. <laughs> I really believe it is. But maybe take away sales because people think of car sales. They think of like dishonest kind of like just trying to get something. Think about, you know, influencing people. And it really is influencing people. You've got to have a pipeline. You can't, everyone wants to be an account manager these days. Everyone's like, I just want to manage accounts. So much easier. Because our brains have the fight or flight. It goes to the amygdala. We're calling someone up. Do you want to work with me? And they say, no, it hurts us, right? And that's normal. It comes from the caveman times, the fight or flight. You know, we just want to keep with our tribe. We've got to stay alive, all of that. And our brains go into kick kind of fear when we get rejection. But the minute that people get over that and they realized you know what just four or five a day I'm going to try and call some new clients then when all the recruitment's dried up you'll still have stuff coming through the pipe and too many recruiters they rely on the incoming stuff they forget to do the BD and then they wonder why two months in well it's really busy why is it quiet now well, I've got new clients and then they want to leave or they've got a manager telling them to get on the phone and no one wants to get on the phone when you're told to get on the phone and make sales calls. And that was my biggest mistake as a manager. When I first started, I was like, let's do sales calls. Let's do sales calls. Woohoo. And everyone was like, really? <laughs> and I never asked them why they didn't want to make the sales calls. We never explored that. Mm. That was my biggest lesson as a manager, I think, because I was so task orientated, like make the calls, make the calls. No one wants, it's like going to the gym. The PTs, like, do another press-up. Like, no, you know, but it's why don't you want to do the press-ups? Talk about the fear. It's real. And talk about how, you give them stories, give them inspirational stories, make them understand what they're doing. And we often think that we're annoying people, right? Whereas a week ago, can you remember what you had for breakfast last Wednesday? I don't. <laughs> and I probably won't remember that person who sent me a sales message last Wednesday either. So we're building familiarity. And that's the one thing I've learned to get people over that fear of the sales and then they will become successful. Yeah, I want to dig a bit deeper on that in a second. But what, just quickly, what, what, was, your, what was your worst day? What was the, the hardest day as a temp educational recruiter or maybe even leader? Like what, what was the, the worst day that you probably had those ideas of maybe quitting or leaving the industry. I think sometimes it's a stigma that's attached to you as a recruiter of being dishonest. And I've had that once as a rec rec and once as a temp recruiter when a school said, you were lying to me, this TA is not great. She's all, you know, it's when you make that mistake and someone thinks that you're trying to con them in some way. I, that's really hard because for me as a person, and I think any recruiter should have integrity and should want to do it for the right reasons. And unfortunately, the recruitment industry does have that stigma of, you know, cutthroat, trying to sell me something. And it doesn't have to be like that. And I think that really hurts me, <laughs> genuinely hurts me. People won't turn up. You'll have bad days. Placements won't happen. But for me, that's a good day, right? Because that is when my competitor is going to quit. And I genuinely believe that. Like in Rec to Rec, I started out, I did 100 calls a day, tried to contact candidates. Everyone was like, I'm not interested. 
please stop contacting me. I'm not interested. And I thought, it's really hard. What am I doing? What did I do? Why did I leave employment? And then I just thought to myself, no, because this is when people do give up. And this is actually when I have to carry on. And I often feel you have to reach that really bad day to pick yourself up. And that's when the success comes. That's interesting. So the, when I said the worst day, it was when you almost felt, I don't want to say attacked, but put like your sort of character or actually as a person was sort of questioned. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's, that's hard to, to swallow. Yeah, I, I get that. Just on, I'm speaking, I've spoken to a lot of recruitment leaders recently. And I think what what's fair to say may not be for everyone's market, but I think over the last three to six months, it's definitely become more difficult on the business development side for a lot of the recruiters that, that I'm speaking to. I think over the last two years, a lot of recruitment companies hired to keep up with demand. And what would typically happen won't be the case for everyone, but they may have found themselves start their recruitment career in a sort of candidate focused role, delivery consultant role, resource role, whatever. Maybe we're working on house accounts, key accounts that the, the, the company had. And maybe they did do some business development, but it was quite easy maybe, or yeah. they didn't, they sort of got success maybe quite quickly. But I think that, that might have really shifted for people over the last three to six months or the people that I'm speaking to anyway. So I think more and more recruitment companies are looking at their teams and going, we need more people to be self-sufficient at winning new business, winning new logos and doing that. But that's hard. And a lot of people do have that fear that you're talking about. Don't want to make the sales calls, don't want to do the business development. So a lot of recruitment leaders have shared with me because I'm speaking to them about learning development and unlocking the potential of their teams that they that is something they're always trying to work with their team on and they really feel like and I, I definitely agree a big part of it is the mindset and a big part of it is putting clients on the pedestal um not sort of valuing your own time or the um, thinking that your time like they should give you time right so you mentioned that earlier I'd, I'd love to just get a bit more on that on your own experiences of helping your team become more self-sufficient at BD and doing more of the new business generating, building that pipeline when a lot of people are fearful of it, a lot of people yeah. have that mental block. How did you help people break through that? Well, as I said to you, quite honestly, I don't think I did it very well at the start of my management career. The superstars were great. They were like, yeah, we're on the phone, we're doing it. But I think I probably lost a couple of people I shouldn't have lost because I was too task orientated. And I think the thing I've learned is the environment. Like actually the lady who replaced me at Axis was probably one of the most positive people I've ever met. And she, in many ways, has had probably more success than I have, which is okay, right? And But I think, and I've learned from her, she's very positive. And she's, if you're in the right environment that you don't feel like someone's standing over you and watching you or you're going to get fired any minute, then you're going to be more inclined to pick up the phone. And I think the reason a lot of people don't pick up the phone and call people is because they're insecure within themselves or they're scared. And, you know, there's a lot of, as people in general, we focus on the negatives a bit. You know, there's that negativity bias. For example, I'm sure you speak to more people on a daily basis about bad breakups than, oh, I'm so happy with my partner. You know, you always hear the bad stories. And it's the same with sales. People remember the bad calls. But I think it's at that point, you've just got to, whether it's a prompt, whether it's like, a nice song that you listen to before you do it or something that motivates you. But then afterwards, a reward. Just the fact that you've done it is a great thing. And often people don't realise that the fact that you did that call block is so much better because you built familiarity. So you don't want to be coming away from it. Oh, I got nothing. No, no, no. The fact you got on the phone is awesome. You've built the familiarity, you've built the brand. But the main thing is that people think that they have to get something from every call. And then they take it too far Hisham will get annoyed and say, don't call me again. Salesperson never wants to make another sales call. But actually, if they go more down the route of, you're not interested, that's absolutely fine. No problem. Remember me when you are, I'm off. Just leave them alone. They're not interested at that moment. It's a bad day. Just go. Call the next one. You know, don't nag people. <laughs> you just want to get a yes, no, or maybe as quick as possible. And if it's a yes, then you can build on that, get in front of them, but don't try and don't try and push them anywhere that they don't want to go. I think that's the problem. People think that you have to. You don't. Mm, yeah. Yeah, I definitely resonate with the focusing on the outcome rather than the process. So ju just on that, if you were to go back and work with your recruiters again, with what you know, 
let's say I was someone that was, yeah, did have re- like a lot of rejection. I was, I didn't want to experience that again, but I do have a cool block. I'm, I'm about to do BD. What would your advice be to me to, to focus on the process and like, what is the purpose of that call? What makes that call successful? Is it just information gathering? Is it, I don't know what, how would you like reframe what that, what a successful call block looks like? What is it that um, people should actually be focusing on rather than, yeah, getting terms signed with someone or getting a, a yes. Like, I don't know, what 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 is it instead that you'd get them to, to focus on? I think, first of all, having a call objective, right? So a lot of the time you hear recruiters saying, do you need any staff? Do you need any staff? Do you need any staff? No. <laughs> and it's like, oh my gosh, the amount of times like recruiters do this and it's just like, it's soul destroying. Whereas if they talk about a specific member of staff, which we call a spec call or whatever, where you get actually genuinely excited by this person, that's going to have more of an impact. I think getting in front of them, building that familiarity, like, you know, you've basically got about 30 to 60 seconds to make an impact. You're not going to like sell your whole company and sign terms over the phone, but use it as a chance to get in front of them, get a visit. Don't ask them when they're free because no one knows when they're free. We're all so busy. <laughs> so, you know, what time, um, if I was free Tuesday next week, does 2 p.m. or 4 p.m. work for you? It's easy. They can just think 15 minutes. Oh, yeah, I can do that. I can do it. That's fine. Awesome. Done. Then you've got the chance to build a relationship with them, talk to them a, a bit further about what their needs are. So my main bit of advice would be to not be too transactional in the sense of, I've used that a lot, that (laughs) phrase, but I think have a purpose for the call, right? If it is a gatekeeper, get information. You know, they're great. We love gatekeepers. Like find out exactly how often do you use agency staff? Very often, oh, cool. Well, you know, get them on side. What what do you think I should do? Mm. Because I don't want to be annoying. And lots of salespeople don't say this. People just think salesperson annoying. We just say, oh, I don't want to be a pest. <laughs> the last thing I want to do is like, however, I have got this really good candidate who I know would be ideal for your school. What do you recommend I do? And get that gatekeeper to kind of give you advice and to say why you're calling, right? Mm. Even if even if we were like just finishing podcasts and your partner called you like, yeah, what's up? Why, you know, even <laughs> the people we love the most, we want to know quickly why they're calling. So when it's a stranger, gosh, you've got to make a quick impact quickly and get to the point. Yeah, I think... My insights on that are my experience and I'm always on an ongoing journey of how I can improve on, on sales. But I think, I don't know if, if you're listening to this and maybe relate to some of this. For me, I think one of the best things you can do is, is write down what that reason for calling is yeah. and not have a bit of a script or talking tracks. Because I think, again, it comes down to like you don't, when you're doing those calls, you don't want to be thinking on the spot all the time. Like you want to try and make it as easy as possible. So true. And what's really helped me is, yeah, having a bit of a script and explaining like when Susanna does say like, why are you calling me? That you've got a succinct answer that you've experimented and tested and you can try out different things that you use and you can obviously sense, you know what, that worked really well or that didn't, I'm going to change that. But I think definitely going into these types of calls equipped with what is it that I'm going to say. Obviously, you are going to have to think on your feet. You are going to have to react and and that's what makes great salespeople. But I think like there will be parts that you can, yeah, practice and have a bit of a script. And I think the other breakthrough that, that I've had is I always recommend this book for anyone. If you're listening to this, you're probably into your own learning development. But have you have you read the um, Never Split the Difference? No. Oh, right. yeah, that's like you have to read that. So for me, that is the best negotiation sales book in, in, in my view. Never Split the Difference. Never Split the Difference. Chris Voss, he was a FBI hostage negotiator for X number of years and then he's taken everything that they applied in that context to sales, to the commercial world and you can use it in so many different things. But one of the biggest breakthroughs, just really quickly and then we'll move on, is the, the power of no questions. I don't know if you've come across this no (laughs) but I'm so curious so when I don't know what you think about this we can just play this out but how do you feel when you say yes good good (laughs) maybe let me give it to you this when you're being sold to or the context of getting a call you didn't expect it how do you feel about saying yes in in that context bit guarded right so for (laughs) me I feel like what am I letting myself in for yeah a bit like what what is this now? What's the what's the catch? Exactly. So the biggest breakthrough that I've had is is it's all about leading with no questions. And what I mean by that and, and from reading this book and I use it every single day, when the other person is saying no, they almost feel in control. Mm. 
they feel empowered because when you say you're 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 saying no and then it's like you can justify why you're saying no or whatever like you, you do feel in control rather than saying yes so j- just a just a quick tip every single call that i start i start with the same question and it works really well and it's starting with a no rather than getting a yes and the, mm-hmm. uh, and the answer is are you in the middle of something mm-hmm. and i'm either going to get no i'm not mm-hmm. which then gives me the opportunity to to carry on the conversation mm-hmm. or if i get yes that's fine. They they've said yes. I am really busy. And it's like okay. Well, sure. When is a better time or whatever? But if they say no, they've felt in control and they're like, no, I'm not. I'm not busy. And then you've then it then leads into the conversation. But again, the the other tip and way to use this as well is when you're let's say you get the why. Like so for me, it's all about uncovering. Does this person have the problems that I think they may have? That's what I want to find out. Mm-hmm. So I will outlay, so let's say it's at school, it's like I speak to education leaders all the time who share with me that they have their temps show up late or the quality of the, the temps aren't great from the people they were speaking to, et cetera, et cetera. And then you go, but you're probably going to tell me that none of that resonates. Mm-hmm. And you go, no, 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 that is, that is definitely true. Do you get what I mean? So it's, it's, yeah. It's, it's, yeah, I would definitely look into that. And when we're talking about sales and getting more out of your conversations, oh no gosh. questions is, I love is, that. is big. I love that. Can I just ask you a genuine, do I get to ask you a question? (laughs) So how do you say you're contacting your friends or your Mm. colleagues? How do you like to be contacted the most? Like what's your, are you WhatsApp? Are you text? Are you phone? Mm. Which one are you? Like what's your main communication source of communicating with your, your colleagues and friends? I'd say WhatsApp, but I do, I prefer, I prefer having a conversation. Yeah. The reason I ask this is because I know I've spoken a lot about picking up the phone, but now like, for example, I put everyone into a sequence, right? So I will always pick up the phone first, but then I maybe will wait four days and I'll send a voice note on LinkedIn and I should stop telling people about this because it's probably been one of the most successful things that I've done. Voice notes on LinkedIn, no one's doing it. Mm. and like video messages, videoard, again, people aren't doing it, but the open rate is so much higher than the messages. So I put people into a sequence. So I do telephone call, wait four days, voice note, wait four days, message, wait four days, email. And often I get a response, whereas if I just stuck to one communication method, just phoning, it would probably fall a bit more in deaf ears. They might not be a phone person. They might prefer email. And, you know, sometimes I think as salespeople, we forget, we stick with what we're comfortable. Like I've spoken to so many consultants, they're like, I'm good on visits. Okay, awesome. But, you know, what about the people who don't really meet people? You know, there's Mm. all sorts of ways and we've got so much at our disposal and a lot of people are not flexing their communication enough. And I think that's been a really big kind of aha moment for me and something that we don't realise that we're not doing enough. We're just sticking to one communication style. That is our preference, not the people who we want to reach. No, that's a great insight, particularly on, again, we're talking about BD sales, getting more out of it, it applies to candid- the candidate side as well. But yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm big on this. We've um, done a couple of sessions recently on recruitment mentors about yeah, having a multi-channel approach, landing that first client meeting. And yeah, for me, the best recruiters do have different ways and different ways. They use all different ways of communicating. So like yourself, and this is what you can experiment with everyone. And this is the fun f- part about it. But for me, if I want to take Susanna, who I think is my ideal customer profile, yeah, I, I take her through a journey where it starts with an email, then it's a phone call, then it's a LinkedIn voice note, then it's another email, then it's a phone call. So yeah, 100% experience, like testing and, and using different ways to communicate with people is absolutely what you should be doing. If you're just following up every couple of days by trying to phone them, yeah, you, you might get limited results and, and limited success. And what you just said as well about the right client, making sure it's the right, the clients that are going to be your best clients opposed to wasting time with clients who might never use anyway. And mm. wondering why you're not getting any success. Mm. So what, what's been your biggest challenge? I feel like it does come up a lot where like you do have a lot of people that do rec to rec that I'll be honest, are a bit similar to you where it's, it's a one person band just smashing it out, making however much money a year and, that, and that's fine. But I think a lot of people feel like it's easy or easy to do because it's like, oh, you know what? 
I'm going to start my own recruitment business, rec to rec. I've done recruitment myself. I'm, I'm going to do that. And I think there's only a few, it depends what your goals are, but I do think there are only a few rec to rec businesses that have successfully like scaled or, or grown because it is really difficult. Yeah. What's been your biggest challenge since, since going on, the, on this journey? Because you obviously was in education recruitment. You were a leader. I'm sure you recruited for the branches that you're responsible for, but it's entirely different to then recruit for different recruitment businesses. You then have to deal with recruiters that know how to sell, they know how to, to sell themselves they know the game so what has been your biggest challenge since on the rectorect journey this podcast is proudly sponsored by vincherry and i wanted to start this year by just making things a bit more clear last year vincherry joined forces with the access group vincherry has always spoken openly about their ambition to become the recruitment operating system By partnering with a heavyweight like the Access Group, who shares their vision of providing a single operating system for the front, middle and back office of recruitment firms, there are now no limits to how far Vincere can take the platform and the experience they provide all of their customers. Vincere will also become the flagship CRM within Access Recruitment's portfolio or products. It's the same people, same platform, just way more firepower, which is why I'm really excited to continue my partnership with Vincherry this year. Just to make things a bit more clear as well, Vincherry is offering a really simple offer for all of you listeners of this podcast. If you listen to this podcast and find that Vincherry is a great solution for your recruitment business, you will get 10% off your user license. That's 10% off. Use the show notes and there'll be a link in there to get that discount and book in a demo. Do you want to know the truth? (laughs) Getting over the the difficult, boring moments of it, right? So, and what I mean by that is, have you ever read the book Atomic Habits by James Clear? Honestly, I'm I'm actually in love with James Clear (laughs) because it's changed my life, that book. And like every night before I go to bed, I create my 30 names, right? That's my 30 names. And then I wake up in the morning. I try and wake up about 5.30. That's my time. And then I would do the thing I don't like doing the most in the morning, which is the BT, which is the hunting. And that is where I go through these 30 names and I, I approach them in various different ways. You know, like eat that frog, the thing you don't want to do in the morning. The frog's what, not going to get... you do that at 5.30 in the morning? Well, I, I, that's my me time. I probably start about 7.30. You say, again, doing BD, doing BD at 5.30, no. I don't know how much success you so get. So I wake up that. at 5.30, I, I kind of have my me time, I wake up the kids and then I go to the gym and work out and then I, because I work at the gym because they've got a workspace and then I will do my BD because that's once I that's done. I've set myself up for success. Mm. It's only like nine o'clock. I've already done my workout. I've done my BD. And then I get to do the things that I enjoy doing a bit more. And the reason that this works so well is because it is, it's a habit. Did it happen? It's like, you know, we hopefully all of us brush our teeth twice a day, right? <laughs> is it any effort? No, because it's just, we built the habit. Whereas once upon a time, that was probably It would be difficult if we started a new habit tomorrow. It would be difficult and we would probably fail and then maybe think, oh, it doesn't work. I'm not going to do it again. But what I've learned about habits is that the more it's like obstacle immunity, right? It's an obstacle at first, but the more that you do it, the more you just become immune to it. And it's just something you just do. So for me, that's been you asked me why, how I've been successful and what makes me stand out It's because I am so disciplined, right? Even when I'm not motivated, when motivation isn't there, discipline shows up. And that's the quote that I live by. I I literally am so disciplined to the point that I'm not happy if that discipline is broken. And I think, again, talking about strong recruiters, it's the people who can show discipline. And when you're working for yourself, it's hard. Mm. Some days I just want to lie in bed. Some days I just want to watch Netflix. (laughs) So so what, your your biggest challenge has been doing the boring stuff? Yeah. Like, and making sure that you stick to the habits, right? Because there's always something we prefer to be doing. And sometimes it's what you need to do opposed to what you want to do. What do you believe recruiters want out of their career? What is the most common thing that you find out? Susanna, I want this in my next role. I'm motivated by this. I want this. My company's not giving me this. Like, what, what is it that, again, everyone's different, but what, what are the common things that you hear from recruiters when you work with them? Like, what is it that they want? So I do find it's different, right? 
So as a rector, the worst thing you can do, I believe, is sell people jobs. Because mm. I don't know. Like, I might be like, hey, Hisham, I've got a job that's like got the best work-life balance that you could ever have. Hisham might not want a better work-life balance. You might be all about the money. So my first question is always, what's most important to you? Money, work-life balance, progression, social culture. And most of the time people say, well, all of them. Then you ask them to put them in, in order, Right. And then a good recruiter will scenario paint. <laughs> so, for example, how many times do recruiters say, for example, they went to work in Brighton. They told me they only wanted to work in London, but they've just got a job in Brighton with another recruiter. No, no, no. They definitely wanted to work in London. They definitely wanted to work in London. That's not true. Well, it did happen. They're working in Brighton. <laughs> but why? And often it's because the recruiter didn't form scenarios where you said that location's important to you. But what if you got £50,000? Would you then move to Brighton? actually, yeah, actually, London isn't so important. I, I probably would move to Brighton. So, for example, a lot of recruiters, they take it as a given what people say first, but give them scenarios. Well, what if you had more of a work-life balance, but they paid you a bit less? Would that be more important to you then? Yeah, actually, it would. So I think um, the biggest skill that a recruiter can have is to delve into that discovery of scenarios because you might think you know what that person wants, but you don't know until you give them the scenarios. So when you do that exercise with recruiters, what are the top two typically? Is it money yes, and go progression? Yes, yes, yes. You've got it. Yeah. yeah. Money and progression. Okay. <laughs> Everyone wants more money, especially at the moment. I think a lot, there's a lot of people out there who want as much money as possible for an easier role as possible. So a company that will provide the most resources, but it's the recruiters that will take those resources and take that money and really make something of it that are the superstars and... Some of them, I just, I just, I've got a big heart. I just adore them. I just think they're most amazing people. I just think some recruiters that you meet are just so inspirational. Um, that's why I love what I do. Tell me about, from your perspective, where do typically companies go wrong in keeping their staff? So what are the common frustrations, pains that you hear from recruiters? Is it that they work for a, a manager who is a proper micromanager or doesn't empower them, they don't feel valued? Is it I haven't had the right training? What's the typical things that you hear from people when it comes to my company's not doing this, so I want this. Like, where are companies falling short, you think? Commonly? I think there's one thing that comes to mind and it's trust, right? Mm. So, especially with this whole work from home thing, it's caused a lot of politics in many companies. And often because somebody maybe has not done a very good job working from home. So as a result, the whole team are not allowed to work from home anymore. And the people who are actually quite trustworthy and work very autonomously get really frustrated by that. And I think as a manager, one of the best things that you can do is show trust to your employees and make them accountable and not watch them. That old school recruiting of like, how many calls you made today? How many calls you made today? I don't think it works. I don't. And like, I, 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 you get results maybe, yes, for a certain amount of time looking at call time and analysing it, but ultimately showing them trust, the results will, will come out for themselves. And the best companies are the ones who are not hiring and firing, but they're the ones who coach people to understand that actually, you know what, this role isn't for me. And the person makes a decision themselves instead of on the firing line, which creates fear, uncertainty and negativity in teams. Mm. How can you sniff out if a recruitment company isn't going to trust you? As a recruiter, mm. you've got to ask them how they manage. Mm. And you've got to say, I think you do have to ask around a bit, but also make your own decision. Go into the office, look at the people. Do they really look happy? <laughs> <laughs> what is the turnover like there, right? Like one of my best clients, the average person stays there for a minimum of four years, mm. which is amazing in recruitment. And um, their mission statement is our people matter most and they live and breathe that and everything they do. And it's a joy to recruit for them because people see that when they go there. So I think it's um, ask them about their attention. If a job's become available and it seems too good to be true, ask them how that job became available. And there's nothing wrong with asking that. You need to know one of the most important decisions you can make is where you work. So we only get one life, right? Mm. Only one. As we wrap up and finish this then, like what has surprised you most since going on this rec to rec journey, do you think? That's a good question. Mm. I think it surprised me most, the amount of people who stay perhaps in roles where they're not treated well, 
because of fear. As a lot of people that I speak to very regularly, I've been speaking to for the last year, who it's really clear that they could be getting a lot better somewhere else and they're really unhappy, but they just haven't got the confidence to make that jump. So I think that's one of my biggest surprises is witnessing the people who are almost blinded by loyalty and what are the chances of us being alive, right? One in four trillion, is it, or something? And, you know, there's such an important thing. Like, we do only get one life, and it's like you spend more time at work than you do with your family. So if if there are things that are consistently making you unhappy, if you're worried about going to work every Sunday and you're dreading the Monday, then something's not right. And I think that my biggest surprising moment is the people who don't take that and make the right changes. Mm. So let's wrap this up then with, obviously, so you specifically focus on education and professional services right that's what you've been focusing on Mm -hmm. so how would you how would you describe the market right now exactly what you said i think it's been a great time to be a recruiter over the last year but i think now is the time when people have to upskill companies have to invest in their in in the bd side of it because you're going to have to start working harder (laughs) to get on the clients but also look at your branding you know speak speak to yourself like really look at what is your mission Go away from being transactional and start thinking about what, bring heart back to recruitment and less making a placement for the sake of it. Mm. But found what good, I know everyone's different, like different markets and everything, but overall are you feeling in terms of the clients that you work with, are they seeing a massive slowdown? Are they not? Are they seeing that it's sort of just adjusting to maybe what normal would be compared to that what it has been? Like, how would you describe those markets out of interest? I think people are becoming fussier with the standard. Um, They want to see proof of billings. Mm. They want to really vet their candidates in the best possible way. People are still recruiting, but they're more, um, like, for example, cross-sector recruitment isn't happening as much. People Mm. are wanting to see pay slips for evidence. They're wanting to see proof of billings. They're delving into a deeper interview process. And so they should, right? Mm. It's a big decision. Susanna, thanks for uh, joining the podcast. Love, love your journey, love your mindset. Uh, massive thank you for, for joining me. Absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. <laughs> thank you. Well done on making it to the very end of the episode. I hope you enjoyed it. I've done my very best to try and level up this podcast that will hopefully mean that you can take even more learnings from these conversations and apply it to your own recruitment career. Like always, if there are any particular topics that you would love me to cover with future guests, then please get in touch with me. The best place to reach me is on LinkedIn. Send me a message. What would you love me to cover with future guests? If you have enjoyed the podcast, then it would be amazing if you could leave a honest review in your favorite podcast streaming platform. That will simply mean that we're able to reach more people with this podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. And don't forget to subscribe completely free on your favorite podcast streaming platforms. And we'll be back next week with a new episode of the Recruitment Mentors Podcast.